Good morning, everyone. Excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, again, my name is Levi Collins. My wife and I have been coming here for a couple years, and I'm, I'm just excited to share with you a little bit about Philippians chapter 1. So if you want to turn there with me, <clears throat> we'll get started. So first of all, I want to do just a brief introduction of the book of Philippians. You know, who are they, and, and why is Paul writing to them? What kind of a place is he writing to them from? And this, Philippians is one of Paul's prison epistles, which means that Paul was writing it from house arrest in Rome before he was going to be tried and eventually executed by Nero. And some things, it paints a good context for us to remember that, that he's writing from a place of being in a trial, and he's going to write to the Philippians about how to view God's goodness even in the midst of hard things. Just in, from the beginning of the book, you can tell that his tone is not the same tone that he uses in a lot of his other letters. Oftentimes, he'll introduce himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But here, he doesn't. He actually says bondservant or doulos, that word, a, a free-willing slave to God. My, you know, it's when a slave would say, my master's been so good to me, I just want to give my whole life to him and serve and follow him. So where did this this church in Philippi, where do we first hear about them? Where did they come from? So Philippi is actually in in Macedonia. And we first hear about them in Acts chapter 16 as Paul is coming along through his second missionary journey. He's gone all the way through Greece. And suddenly he hears a vision from God. And there's Macedonian people saying, come and preach the word to us also. Come and tell us the good news. And so Paul is obedient to that, and he gets in a boat and crosses over to Macedonia and goes to Philippi. And in Philippi, he meets a number of people that begin to start the church. The first one that's mentioned is Lydia, and she is a seller of purple, which was an expensive dye to get. You had to get it from seashells. And so it meant that she was a little bit more well-off. And she hears the gospel from Paul, and she and her whole family get saved, and the church starts in her house. And from there, Paul and Timothy, they're ministering at that church. And as they're going through the streets of Philippi, there's this woman that's coming behind them, and she's demon-possessed, and she's shouting after them. And it's, it's actually a disturbance. It's, it's causing Paul some, some frustration. So he turns around to her, and he says, I, I cast the demon out of you. And the, the demon is gone. And, but her masters, the masters of that slave, weren't happy because they were using her to tell the future, because this demon could tell the future. And so they had Paul and Timothy put into prison. And even as they're in prison, they're singing praises to God, and they're saying, they're, they're proclaiming how good he is. And as they're doing that, suddenly the bonds fall off their wrists and their ankles, and the, and the doors of the prison are opened. And the, the guard who's in charge of the prisoners thinks, oh no, the prisoners are escaping. And so he's about to end his life because in that, in that culture, if you were a Roman guard and your prisoners escaped, your life was the penalty for that. And so Paul says, no, we're not going anywhere. We, we haven't left. We're actually still here. And so don't, don't hurt yourself. And actually, let me tell you the good news while I'm at it, you know? <laughs> Uh, let, me, let me tell you about Christ. And so he does, and, and he and his whole family, his whole household, get saved and evidently join that church. So it's amazing. Those are some of the people you hear about. Those are some of the stories that that church is born out of. And then 
Paul and Timothy are only there a short time longer. And it says they encouraged the brothers and they left. So he wasn't there a profound amount of time. But you can tell based on even what he says throughout Philippians, through the letter, that they made a profound connection to each other. They really made a connection where there's a partnership that was born. And these Philippians, you're going to continue to hear throughout the scriptures of them as people who are continuing to invest in Paul's ministry. And they fund him as he's going along. And they even fund him during house arrest, because when you're under house arrest, you had to be supported by outside people. And so that kind of sets the tone for this whole letter that he's going to be writing, where he's going to start talking in verse 12. He's going to start talking about his trials and how he views them and how he can still give God glory in the midst of them. Now, these first verses, 1 through 11, are really just discussing how grateful he is about the Philippian church, the ministry that they've, they've been able to partnership with him in, and what he hopes for them, his prayer for them. And going through that, it leads us right up to verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So right there, he's telling them, I know this might look like a speed bump to the work of Christ that I'm, I'm in prison and have been for at least over a year at this point. But it's not. It's not a speed bump to the work of Christ. God has new things for me to do, even in the midst of my trial. Even though I don't get to choose where I get to be right now, God is using this opportunity for me to share the gospel with all these guards. So what does he mean that he's been able to share the, whole, the, the gospel with the whole Praetorian guard? What is that? How would he be able to do that under house arrest? Well, how it would work would be Paul could go around his house. That was fine. And there would be two guards that would just follow him around and make sure he wasn't trying to escape. And they would be rotated out so that there's new people you know, every once in a while. And so as he's in arrest, he's viewing it as an opportunity. I've got these two guys that can't really go anywhere. They're stuck with me. And so you know, I can say whatever they want. And they they kind of have to deal with it. So he's, he's using it as an opportunity to share the gospel. And he's, he's excited about it. He's viewing it as an opportunity to to share Christ's word and as, as a positive thing, even though it, it could be a very discouraging thing to be under house arrest for, at this point, over a year, and who knows how much longer. He doesn't know. But that's not the only good thing that he sees coming out of this. He also sees that most of the brothers around him, he was allowed to have Christians visit him, that they were being encouraged by his attitude in the midst of the trial, that they were actually speaking the word with more boldness, knowing that, you know, Paul spoke the word boldly, and yes, he's under arrest, but God is still good to him, and he'll still be good to me. And so I can be bold with my faith as well. So some of the things I want to talk about today is, is how can God bring good things out of a difficult situation, a trial, a bad thing in our lives? How can God still bring good out of it? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God works all things for good, for the ones who love him and have been called according to his purpose. 
And really, as I look through Scripture, I, th- I see three major themes of ways that God uses trials in our lives for good. The first one is that he can deliver us to build our faith. He can reposition us in our hearts to be available for what he has for us. And he can bring glory to himself by our response, how we react to the situations around us. So first of all, he can deliver us to build our faith. You see all throughout scriptures examples of ways that people are being saved by Christ, by God. God puts them into a situation where they have to depend on him. And then when he comes through, you see that they, their faith is built, built up. And it's a reminder, that's right. I can trust in God. He's always been good to me. He's always been faithful. He's going to continue to be faithful. And the first main example that I would like to talk about is the people of Israel. You see that throughout the whole of the Old Testament. God is continually putting this group of people, even though they sometimes wander away from him, he's putting them in situations where they have no option but to trust in God and to look to him to save them. And I'm, I'm going to take us right back to, the, to really the beginning of where, where God is calling them out of Egypt. They've been in, in slavery for 400 years, and, and that's all they've ever known. They've, all they've ever known is being slaves in Egypt, but God raised up a man named Moses, and, and he put him in just the right place so that he would actually be able to say to Pharaoh, let these people go, let my people go, And God accompanied that with a number of miracles that eventually brought Pharaoh to the point where he's like, you know what, get out of here. I don't want to see you again kind of thing. And and as as these people are leaving, they're being brought out, God actually tells them to go to a place where they are going to have to trust in him because there is no way that in any other way they'd be able to deliver themselves. They're going to be stuck. And so in Exodus 14, 1 through 4, I'm just going to read this real quick. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Harioth, between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh says, what Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So God is telling them to be in a place where they are going to be trapped in between the sea and, a, and an army of Egyptians. And they have, you know, they're, they're not warriors. They've been slaves for 400 years. They don't know how to fight. And these are the people who have oppressed them for as long as they can remember. And he's putting them in a position where they're stuck. They have nothing they can do. I mean, imagine yourself. If you were there, God has just shown some miracles and taken you out of Egypt. And you think, oh, wow, God has a good plan. You know, this, this is going to be great. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're up against the sea. The sea's in front. An army's behind you. What are you going to do, right? You, you might say to God, well, what's, what's the good plan that you have in this, Lord? What, how are you going to, to make a good situation out of this? Because I feel stuck, and, and honestly, I'm not really okay with your plan right now. You know, uh, But that's, that's where God put them so that 
he could lead them through an impossible situation, opening up the Red Sea so they could walk through, so that they would know that he was God. And not only them, but Israel for hundreds of years later, you know, whenever the leaders of Israel wanted to point the people back to God, they referenced, remember the God who took you out of Israel with a mighty hand. It's just an amazing reminder to them for all time that God was faithful and he has the power to deliver if he so chooses. And so that's one of the ways he can, he can deliver us to build our faith. That's one way he can bring good out of a trial. But the second way is he can reposition us and our hearts to be available for what he has for us to do. One of the stories that I really love that I feel like really speaks to this a lot is Joseph being sold into slavery. You see a situation where it's, it's really tragic, if you look at it, that he was, he was taken from his home and he was basically, he was the, the favored child, you know, the favorite child of his, of his father because he was the child of his favorite wife. And so he had everything going for him. You know, he got all the nice things and his, and his brothers, they just, they hated him because he was, obviously nobody likes a, favorite, uh, a favorited sibling, right? And, but in his, in his perspective, he's got, he's got a lot of things going for him in his life. He could feel pretty good about what's going to happen. But his brothers, they, they end up hating him. And, and when he comes out to, to see them and they're in a field all by themselves, him and his brothers, they decide, you know what? Let's get rid of this guy. Here's our chance. Let's, let's kill him. And one of them says, well, let's not kill him ourselves. We don't want to get in trouble, right? So we'll just throw him in a pit and leave him to die because then, then it's not our fault, right? And, uh, but then some traders come along because God wasn't done. And they said, you know what? You know what's even better than leaving him to die? Is selling him to slavery so we get some money on top of that. And so they sell him into slavery and he is, he is taken away from his home, from everything that's familiar to him. And now all he has to look forward to is being a slave in Egypt. And I don't know, if, if, if I were in that situation, I would feel totally abandoned, betrayed by my family. I wouldn't have any idea what to do. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a slave. I thought, I thought God had good plans for me. I thought this was a good trajectory. What, what are you doing? How are you going to bring good out of this? What, what good could possibly come out of this? But God wasn't done. And it said that God gave him favor in the sight of Potiphar's master. He was kind to him. He was good to him, even as a slave. And he raised him up as the, as the head of the household of Potiphar's house, who was the captain of the guard. It's actually not a bad situation if you're going to be a slave to be the head of a household, household of an important functionary. So again, God was showing that he was faithful. He had brought him out of, out of being a, a lowly slave to having some, some responsibilities and importance. But then God is going to bring another trial to him. There's, the Potiphar's wife ends up trying to seduce him. And she's coming after him, and he's, he's constantly saying, no, I'm not going to sin against my master who's been good to me and God who's been good to me. I'm not going to do it. And she keeps coming after him until at the point where he, she grabs onto him, and he has to run, run away and leave his cloak behind him because he's just getting out of there. He doesn't want anything to do with that. And it's ironic because that, she, takes, she takes the cloak, and then she goes to Potiphar and says, look what your slave was trying to do. He was trying to seduce me. And so he gets put into prison 
for a sin that he was intentionally avoiding and that he never did. I don't know about you, but I feel like after all that he'd been through, that would be really hard to take. God, I was, I was serving you even in the midst of being a slave. I was trying to do what was right. I was trying to, to follow what you had for me to do because I thought that this was the plan you had for me. But even in the midst of that, you've, you've taken me now and you've put me into a dungeon. How, how much lower can I go, Lord? But you can tell based on what God continues to do that his response was not bitterness. Had it been bitterness, there's no way that, that the, the officials of the prison would have put him in charge of all the other prisoners. But it says that God was conti- continued to be good to him. He continued to be kind to him. He continued to work through the really the awful situations that he had been going through until he, he was in charge of all the prisoners. And there were two prisoners in specific that he got to go up to. And that he's like, why do you look so sad? And they're like, oh, we had these dreams and we have no idea what they mean. And he said, well, God has the interpretation of dreams. Tell me your dreams. He's still giving the credit and the glory to God. And they, they, tell, him, they tell him the dreams and... And one of them is going, to be, is going to be executed soon, and one of them is going to be raised back up to Pharaoh. And so he says to the one who's going to be brought back to Pharaoh, he says, remember me before Pharaoh when you go back before him. And what does the man do? He forgets about him. Not only does he forget about him, but he forgets about him for two years. Can you imagine being in that scenario? You've gone from the, the favored son down to your brother's trying to kill you, down to oh, actually, let's sell him as a slave for life, down to, oh, I'm accused of something I didn't do, and now I'm in, I'm in jail. <laughs> it's really just a really rough transition, that, but God has been faithful every step of the way. And you can tell that, that he, he's on a journey where God is bringing him to just the right place at just the right time. And two years later, Pharaoh has a dream, and he can't, no one can figure out what it means. And it finally clicks, clicks the bell in that guy's brain. He's like, this sounds familiar. I remember that. There's a guy in prison who helped me with that. And so he brings him up before Pharaoh, and he, and he tells him the dream. And, and it's amazing because Pharaoh not only believes him, but he says, you, you know, okay, so there's going to be six years, uh, seven years of feast and seven years of famine. Okay, well, you're the man who's going to collect all of the, the good years of crops for the bad years that are coming. You're the man. You're going to be second in charge in all of Egypt, subject to no one but myself. God had bring, bring him the full circle all the way from being the favored son down through slavery, down through the dungeons, down to right up, right up to the place where he needed him to save the people of Egypt, and eventually he's going to save his own family too. And I think it's amazing not only that God did that, but that he allowed Joseph to recognize what God had done in his life. Listen to this. Genesis 45, 4 through 8, it's Joseph's response. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. 
And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to, all, to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Notice what he didn't do. He didn't say, well, you guys, really, you guys were really lame, and I, I hope you recognize it, you know? <laughs> Even though he, he could have said that. He, he had the absolute authority over them. He could have denied them having any food and left them to starve. Said, well, you deal with it. I'm bitter. This is what you get. But he didn't. Why? Because he recognized that God was good, and God had a good plan the whole time, even in the midst of horrible situation. You know, there, there couldn't have been very many worse things to have happened to him than get, to get sold into slavery to a foreign land and then put in a dungeon. But God brought good out of it, good not only for him, but he allowed him to bless other people around him through the trial. And so God can bring good out of a trial to deliver us and build our faith, to reposition us in our hearts to be available for what he has for us. And the last thing is to, to bring glory to himself from our response. And this ties into the other stories we've heard. But glory, what is that? We want to talk about a little bit about that because sometimes when I think of glory, I don't know about you, but the world's idea of glory is more of a pedestal, right? Or it's maybe, maybe a podium, you know, first, second, third kind of deal. And that's that's really not the biblical reality of glory. Glory, in this sense, the word is doxa, or good opinion. It's, it's the idea of us saying to God, God, I trust and believe that you are good no matter what is happening around me. I'm going to continue to trust that you are good. And one of the stories that I think about when I think of this is I think of Job. The whole book is centered around the idea of God, God allowing Satan to afflict Job, not for any wrong that he's done, but just to show, to test his faith, to produce perseverance, and to show, show what his faith truly was. And Job doesn't know any of that. You have to remember, Job never read chapter one of, of Job. He didn't. He never knew that. But... It's amazing that he still had faith to believe. Because what happened to him was he, God looked over the land, and he was actually talking to Satan, and he said, look over the land. There's no one like Job in all the land, one who follows me with all his heart. And Satan says, well, he follows you, but that's, that's just because you've given him a lot of nice things. That's because you know, he's, got, he's got all the, all the livestock, and he's got the kids, and he's got, he's got the money. So obviously he's going he's gonna to praise you. And God said, well, you can take all that away from him, but don't touch the man himself. And so Satan went out, and all at once, he takes away his wealth, his house, and his kids all at once. And there's servants coming in after, up to him time after time saying, hey, your donkeys, they're gone. Oh, your camels, people took them. Oh, all your sheep died. Oh, and your house collapsed, and your, and your kids were inside, and none of them made it. One after another. It's just, to me, if you were in that scenario, wouldn't you feel overwhelmed? Wouldn't you feel just totally distraught? Let's look at Job's response in Job chapter 1, 20 through 21. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow, what a response. You can tell he's not happy about it, obviously, right? It's not that he is, he is exuberant and like, God, I'm glad you're doing good, good things in my life and you're, you've taken everything away and that, that makes sense. He's not saying that. He doesn't understand the plan. He doesn't know why it's happening to him. But he, even in the midst of his grief, even in the midst of his inner turmoil in his heart, he's recognizing a truth. He's recognizing a truth that everything he has is from God, that he was not entitled to any of it, that it was all a blessing, and that God can give and God can take away, but that doesn't take away from the fact that God was good the whole time. God has always been good, even in the midst of our worst trials. God is good, and he has a plan. And Job, there's never any mention of God telling Job why he did what he did. There's a mention of him saying, who are you to question me? But there's never a mention of Job knowing the full story. It just said that he restored him and he restored the things that he had taken away, right? So it's not, it's not that we always get to hear what God was doing or we always get to see the good that God brought out of it, but God always does bring good out of our trials. Not that they are good in themselves because evil is never good. When evil happens to us, we're not saying that that is good, but God can grow something good out of it. First Peter has a, has a lot to say about trials. And I think that, that Peter, as he's, as he's thinking about it, you know, he's, he's thinking about all the ways that he, he saw Christ walk through trials. And I think especially the trial in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because you have to remember that Christ is not asking us to go through a trial that he has not already gone through. He already knows what it's like to suffer even for something that he didn't deserve. He knows what it's like to suffer so that we could be made right with him. And so I want to read for, me, for you from 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice, when, when Job went through those trials, what did he do? He gave glory, good opinion, to Christ, to God. He said, God, I know that, that this, is, this, this is a difficult situation, but that you, you have given to me and you can take away, and you're still good. That's good opinion, glory, that he's giving back to God. And notice why. What's the reason why we are going through these trials? So that our faith, like gold, can be refined through the fire. It's sanctification, the act of us becoming more like Christ in this life. God is using our trials, even in the midst of our suffering and in our pain, to make us more like him so that we can be like him and we can act like him and we can show his love to those around us in the world. Further on in 1 Peter, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And he ends that, that section by saying, Therefore let anyone who suffers suffer according to God's will and entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. It's that idea that we shouldn't be surprised. Now, why shouldn't we be surprised when the fiery trial comes to us? Why should we not view it as something that's strange, right? Well, God already told us that we were going to face trials. He already said, in this world you will face trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Do we believe that? Do we believe that in this world we will, we will absolutely face trials? You can't avoid it. You know, you can avoid some, but you can't, you can't avoid them all, that's for sure. And that God will bring good out of them because he's overcome the world. He is more powerful than the situations we're in. He is able to, to bring good out of a situation where we couldn't even imagine how he would bring good out of it. And I, I think it really, it really comes to a peak when he says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So what does he, what does he mean? Why are we to rejoice? Rejoicing because we have a bad thing happening to us? No, he doesn't say that. He says rejoice because we share in the sufferings of Christ. We share the same the same suffering that Christ did when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't, he didn't, his body didn't feel like going to the cross. He wasn't like, oh yes, I'm so excited to go to the cross. He was excited to save us, but he was not excited for the actual experience. And he, he told that to God. He was honest. He said, Lord, if there's any way that you could take this cup from me, if you could let this, pass, this cup pass from me, please do so. But your will and not mine be done. If we take on that same attitude in our trials when we're suffering for Christ, we get to share in his suffering when we say, Lord, I don't want this. I never wanted this. I don't know what your plan is in it, but your will and not mine be done. It's just an amazing attitude to have towards Christ. Continuing on, Paul is going to talk back in Philippians in verse 15. He's going to switch Switch topics a little bit. He's going to talk about another trial that happens to him and how he views it. And it's going to give us some insight into his heart posture. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So what's going on here? Basically, Paul, remember, he's in, he's in house arrest. He's not able to continue to journey around the churches like he used to, to go encourage them and keep preaching the word to them in the same way. He's writing letters, but other people are going to the churches and preaching Christ and some are doing it with a good heart. You know, they have good motives. They, they want the best for Paul, too, as in what he's doing. They're doing it out of a good heart. They're not trying to use 
Christ's word as a way to elevate themselves. But Paul is saying that there are other people, people who are using the opportunity that Paul is now out of the way. You know, maybe they were jealous of Paul beforehand, and now, now he's removed so that they can step in, and they are doing so with a bad heart posture. Whether that was them wanting to elevate themselves by the, by the word of Christ, or whatever it was, evidently Paul says they were doing it in an in a intentional way to afflict Paul. They were doing it to make him feel badly. So in, in any way that looks like, it, it, if I were in that scenario, if I were Paul, if, if you and I were Paul, wouldn't we have a hard time with that? Saying there's a fellow believer, a Christian, who is intentionally trying to afflict me by taking over the work that I was doing and by doing it in such a way that I would feel pain from that. But what is Paul's response? Is he holding on to the ministry that he was doing, that he had been slaving for, that he had gone through and been, been persecuted and beat up to share and start these churches? He's not holding on to it as his own. He's viewing it as Christ's work, and any part that he gets to participate, he rejoices in. He, gets, he was rejoicing when he was going through the churches and spreading the gospel there. He's rejoicing spreading the, the word to these Praetorian guards and encouraging the fellow believers who are coming to visit him. And when we have that attitude, especially when we are hurt by someone in the church, just realizing, God, this was your work all along, and it's your, it's your word that is going out, and it's not up to me to necessarily say, write out a bunch of nasty letters. You know, he could have. He could have just sat there and rat, wrote out a bunch of nasty letters, sent them off and said, don't, don't do this. Don't listen to these people because these people have bad motives. But he doesn't. He says, but I rejoice that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, truth Christ is proclaimed. And so sometimes I feel like we can have a hard time, have a hard time with that, though, just even because of the fact that we're like, well, if they have bad motives, how can they do good things? Right? How do we reconcile those two ideas of people trying to serve Christ? Well, not really. They're doing it to elevate themselves. But in an outward way, they look like they're doing everything right. How do we reconcile that? The way that, that Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Notice again, the, em the emphasis is not on the work not being productive for the kingdom. That is not the emphasis of this passage. The emphasis of the passage is about the worker, are we as workers, if we go out without love, if we go out with bad intentions to serve Christ, the kingdom can still be built up even with a bad heart? Because we're all sinful people, let's be honest. None of us have perfect motives all the time. But, Christ is, but Paul in this, in this passage is saying, the one who really misses out when you do that is you. You're the one who misses out if you, if you serve Christ out of a place where you are, not, you are not actually loving the people you're serving. And why? Why do we miss out? We don't get the joy. It's a partnership between us and God. Remember, when we are serving Christ, we are, we are 
we are getting to join in with the work that Christ has already started. It's Christ's work and not ours. And that's what Paul is recognizing. He's not viewing this, although it could be a trial. It's a trial whenever people do things on purpose to hurt us, especially fellow believers. He's not viewing the trial as something to, to be upset about. He's instead viewing it as, God, you are doing good work even through these people. You've got a good plan. There's a reason you have me here. There's a reason you have them there. And I'm going to trust that you are going to be good throughout all of this and that you're going to continue to do your work and spread the gospel. And so his, his heart posture, I think that that's something that we can really, we can really take root on and we can, we can try and imitate that in him as well. Continuing on, Philippians 1 verse 19 actually starts halfway through verse 18 because that's the way it's broken up in most of our Bibles. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that, in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. Wow, what a, what a way for him to express that. He's changing the, the topic of his discussion from, from what God is doing for good to now the outcome. It could be death. It could be life. But guess what? It's still going to be good. God still has a plan in his trial. God still is faithful in, in working all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, even if the result of our trial is death. And that brings a freedom, knowing that we don't have to fear because whatever the outcome, whether by life or by death, he says, Christ can be honored in my body. And so something that I have been thinking about recently, I've been reading The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. And in that, it was encouraging to me that C.S., even C.S. Lewis, when he thought of heaven, you know, sometimes I have a hard time entering into Paul's view here, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But C.S. Lewis, is, when he first heard of heaven, he said it didn't immediately appeal to him as something that was desirable. He hears about the, the glory and the, you know, the golden streets and all of that, but does it fulfill his innermost longings as it is? I think too often we desire heaven only because it's the absence of evil. But do we desire it also because it's the presence of good? Because if we only view it as, wow, life can sometimes be really rough here and, and, and heaven's not going to have any of that, we're only seeing half the picture. We're only seeing the picture that, that if, if we were to see it in full, I think we would be able to enter into Paul's statement to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because I know that my desire... My desire for me is to depart and be with Christ. But he wants to remain 
not, not for himself, not so that he can, he can live the life he wants to live, but so that he can serve Christ for other people. How do we get into that kind of a mindset? How do we think about that? And I think it's we don't understand the concept of, of heaven and what it really, how it really fills our innermost longings. I think that there are, there are two longings that C.S. Lewis brings up in his, in his essay, The Weight of Glory. And the first one is the satisfaction of a need to belong somewhere. Have you ever felt like when you're on a really long trip and you are, are far away from home, eventually the vacation, however fun it was to start out with, you start to be like, well, you know, it's fun and all, but part of me just wants to be back in my own home, sitting by my fire, drinking a cup of tea, and reading a nice book. You know, it's that, it's that idea of wanting to be somewhere where you feel like you completely belong. And, and on earth, we only get a shadow of a picture of what that's going to be like. We have this longing inside our hearts that can only be filled by Christ, that can only be filled by Him preparing a place for us that is eternal. It's not going to be affected by anything in our world. We're not going to lose it in a recession. We're not going to have anything take it away from us here in this world because it's not in this world. And Christ is preparing it for us up in heaven. In John 14, 1 through 4, Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so... Would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will also come back and I will take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place to where I'm going. Doesn't that just make you feel like taking a deep breath, knowing that Christ is going to prepare a place for you? It's going to fill that sense of longing to be somewhere, to belong, to have an absolute identity with where you are, knowing that Christ is going to make a home for you. And this word picture is actually the exact same way that in that time period, a young man would go and prepare a house. He would build off of his father's house an addition, and he would be building the home that he and his wife would live in. And when it was done to his father's standard, his father would say, all right, it's time for us to go and get the wife. You know, we're, we got to go on the journey and, and, and get the bride and bring her back to the home. And they would make a family in the home to be together, to live their life in a new relationship, in a new special way, in a home that he, he built for her. And that's the same picture that Christ uses for us. Christ is building for us a place where we can dwell with him, where we can belong with him, in a relationship that we get to be completely satisfied and fulfilled being with him. And I think the second, the second thing that we have a real longing for is not only to belong somewhere, but to be validated and approved. And that, that builds right into the previous longing. It's, it's really the biblical sense of glory, to be validated and approved. Because remember, glory is not the pedestal. It's not, it's not the, the podium where we're ranking Christians on a, on a rank of who's the best and who's you know, down there, but still made it. That's not... That's not the idea of glory. The idea of glory is doxa, good opinion. That not only do we have good opinion of Christ, even in the midst of our trials, but that God will have good opinion of us. That he will actually approve of us. And I don't think that anyone says it better than C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses 
shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father and a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. It's the idea that Christ, when we come into heaven, says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not for anything that we've done. Remember, it's, it's what Christ did on the cross and, and us accepting that. It's the idea that he approves and validates us absolutely when we get to heaven, knowing that all our sin is washed away. All of the things that we've done wrong are gone. And all that remains, God approves of and validates and says, welcome in. I've prepared a place for you. I've prepared a home for you. And I'm excited to be with you. I'm excited to start, start this relationship where we get to continue to be more, you know, we get to know each other better day by day. And that's, that is the, the attitude, that is the context in which Paul is saying to live as Christ and to die as gain. It makes so much more sense than just saying, well, he's in a bad spot and, you know, when he dies, he, he won't be, you know. It's, it's more than that. It's that he gets to be with Christ and that he's looking forward to it earnestly and he desires it. And it's, it's important to remember that Paul, he, he is... He is saying that, he says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with all of you. That, that word, I know, it's not absolute assurance. It's, I feel relatively certain that, I'm gonna, that God, this is going to be the outcome. But that wasn't, because he doesn't know. And he ends up getting killed by Nero, and with his death, he glorifies God. But that was a good outcome, because that's where he wanted to be. He wanted to be with Christ. He ended up getting to be with his Savior. The last several verses here in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is really going to bring it all together. And he's going to say, in light of the fact that whatever trial we go through, we can recognize that God is good, what are we to do? Verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but you should suffer for his sake." Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He's saying, let us continue to be like him. Let us to continue to live in a manner worthy of Christ. And our trials are a part of us becoming more like him. It's the sanctifying process of us learning how to live in a manner worthy of Christ. And he's saying that the purpose, the purpose and what he's hoping will be the fruit to come out of them living like Christ is he wants to see unity. He wants to see unity in them, striving for one faith, one gospel. They're going in one direction because they are, remember, just like he was saying earlier in, in 15 through 18, it was him striving to be focused on God's kingdom, not our own kingdoms. 
When we're focused on God's kingdom and living in a manner worthy of Christ, we start to move in a direction altogether. We start to lose sight of all of, all of our differences because remember it says love covers over a multitude of sins because we're striving towards the same direction. We're fighting the same fight. And he says, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. That's what all he's been talking about was trials. These are the things that they're threatened with in Philippi. These are the things that could worry them, but he's saying don't be frightened by them because God is good. He's good the entire time. He's good all the way through. And when, he, when you recognize that, you go to recognize that no matter what happens to you, that God is faithful and he is going, going to turn good out of something that is, that is really painful and hard. Notice this. He says, for it has been granted to you. It's a gift that you get to suffer for the sake of Christ and not just believe in him. Remember, it's that sharing in Christ's sufferings. It's that closeness and relationship you get with Christ by saying, God, I remember when you, you didn't want to go to the cross, but you did it anyways for me. You submitted to God's will so that I could become close to you, so that you could bring me into the home that you're creating for me, and so that you could take away my sins so that you could validate and approve me to give me glory and that I could give you glory, good opinion of each other. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that, that you are good even in the midst of our trials. That you are a good God even when we don't have any idea what you're doing. That we can be confident knowing that, that you, you are working all things for the good of those who love you and who have been called according to our purpose. Help us, help us to trust in that. Help us to trust in you. Entrust our hearts to a faithful creator while doing good. Help us to know that when others around us are, are in, in pain, that we, can, that we can encourage them and say, I've, I've been in trials too and I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that you're going through that. And knowing that God is going to take care of them and going to take care of us. Just pray that we become more like you and that you would, you would continue to draw us closer to you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone, and have a great week.